A hostage being held by Hamas is celebrating her ninth birthday today. Happy birthday, Emily, wherever you are. The lead starts right now. Meanwhile, disturbing finds inside Gaza, the remains of a hostage, the second such discovery this week as Israeli forces comb areas around the Al-Shifa hospital and uncover evidence of a hidden terrorist operation run by Hamas. Plus, in the 2024 race, age still a problem, perhaps a bigger problem for President Joe Biden as voters in a key primary state weigh in in a brand new CNN poll. And I will be joined this hour by a different Republican who says he was also once given some unwanted, hostile physical attention from then Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. We're gonna start with our world lead as Israel continues its siege of Gaza's largest hospital. Its forces have found the body, they report, of a second Israeli hostage near the Al-Shifa medical complex. This is 19-year-old Noah Marciano. She was a corporal in the Israel Defense Forces. She was kidnapped by Hamas during the terrorist attacks on October 7th. Hamas confirmed her death earlier this week. They claim she was killed in an Israeli airstrike. Israel denies it. We have no way of knowing the truth. The body of 65-year-old Yehudit Weiss was found yesterday around the same area. It's not clear if the two women were found together. With those two and the discovery of part of the skull of Shani Luke, who was kidnapped from the Nova Music Festival on October 3rd. That's at least the third victim of kidnapping whose remains have been found since October 7th. Today, we're also getting new insight into the negotiations to free at least some of the hostages believed to be currently held by Hamas, which we believe is more than 230 innocent civilians in total. Uh, Sources say Hamas has demanded that Israel stop flying drones over Gaza as part of a larger military pause. The sources caution that Israel is not likely to accept their request since Israel uses the drones to track the movement of Hamas operatives. Today is one of the birthdays of one of the hostages. It's her ninth birthday, Emily Hand. She's one of the faces featured on this new billboard in Times Square. Her dad, Thomas, was in New York City to watch the reveal of the billboard this morning. He told CNN that he's praying she will be home by the end of the year. I want to bring in CNN's Nick Robertson. He's live in Skirot, uh, Israel, just east of the Gaza border. Nick, let's start with the latest on the ground. While Israeli forces are raiding the Al-Shifa hospital for a third day in a row, we are hearing of some really dire conditions for patients in the hospital. Yeah, and I, and I think conditions across the northern part of Gaza behind us must be quite dire for some people at the moment as well, because I say that because we've just been hearing a huge barrage of outgoing artillery tank fire from behind us, seeing some explosions on the horizon behind us. Um, it feels as if this area of Gaza is getting some intense military activity tonight. That's some more of the detonations. We think that's outgoing tank fire. Looking over my shoulder there, we can't see very much, but we have been picking up the occasional flash on the horizon there. This is some of the most intense fire that we've been seeing. Just uh, two steps. Yeah, we're, this is some of the most intense fire we've, we've heard in the past few days from here. I think those big uh, booms you're hearing, that, that's outgoing tank fire from not far away, but it's been accompanied by... 
as you're going to see there, some very, very big uh, explosions illuminating. Uh, looking at the geography of where we're at right now, that is over towards the Mediterranean coast, uh, right at the northern and western tip of, uh, of, of Gaza. That would be sort of Beit Lihar type area, perhaps working down towards uh, the Al Shati refugee camp. These detonations, by the way, are shaking the floor I'm standing on about five miles away. Um, we were talking there as well. I'll talk about the hospital, uh, the, the Al Shafa Hospital, Shifa Hospital, that doctors there have been speaking with the Qatar based Al Jazeera network. We haven't been able to reach them because the phone lines are so badly disrupted in Gaza right now because of a lack of fuel. But that doctor was telling uh, the Al Jazeera network that uh, patients have been dying in the ICU there because they've been running out of oxygen, running out of fuel. He said that promised food. Food deliveries, the IDF delivering some food uh, for the people. He said about 7,000, including patients, still in the hospital, displaced people there as well, 650 children. I think he said many, many children still in the hospital. The amount of food he said that's arriving is insufficient for them. Um, he described a situation where there's no water uh, and no electricity in some of the main buildings uh, inside the hospital there, Jake. But I think, as you can hear, the fighting is not just around the Al-Shifa hospital, which is probably about six miles in this direction. It's way up in the north end of Gaza as well tonight. And Nick, uh, you spoke earlier today to the family of Yehudit Weiss. She's one of the hostages uh, whose body, whose corpse was found near Al-Shifa hospital. What did they have to say? Yeah, I spoke to her middle son. She, had, she has had five sons, uh, Omar, the middle son. I spoke to him and he told me uh, of the pain and suffering and loss. And, and we spoke about his father, Shmuel, who was uh, in the kibbutz, Marie kibbutz, with his, with his mother when she was kidnapped. He'd gone out to try to defend and secure her. Uh, There's such a heavy set of strikes going on. But he'd gone out to try to uh, defend her and, and, and keep her safe. And, and he disappeared while well, the IDF found his body 10 days later. And Omar told me that it just today the family had come out of 30 days of mourning for his father only to get this news about his mother. This is what he told me. Yesterday, we were heartbroken for the second time in a stronger way. When they told us about father, there was still hope that mother would return. And yesterday, we were told that we will not see our mother and grandmother again. What keeps us going is the family, a big, close-knit family. Thanks to mom and dad who took care of us and kept us, that we would be united and strong together. Our strength is our unity. And he told me as well that the most important thing right now, too late for his mother, he said, but the important thing to bring other families back. So this firefight we're watching here now, this is intensifying. Looks like a flare is up, uh, headed up in the sky, but I'm seeing fire raining down from what I can't see, but I would imagine is a, possibly a helicopter. We've seen Apache helicopters. Apache helicopters working in this area of Gaza this evening. We're seeing multiple flashes over there in the northwestern side of Gaza. Um, this, to me, is, is hard to understand because uh, I was in the area close to there and it already looked 
just two days ago, three days ago, incredibly bombed out, deserted, no civilians. Uh, it created the impression there was no military fighting force, uh, Hamas no longer there. Uh, so when you see, when I see the IDF clearly going back in and having these heavy strikes um, in, these, in these similar areas, it's just a reminder, three weeks into this ground incursion, these are some of the biggest flashes I think I've seen here from explosions. Three weeks into this ground incursion, the northern tip of Gaza is still being cleared of Hamas. Uh, the level of fire that's coming in here tonight, quite, uh, quite intense, perhaps some of the most intense we've seen in several days. The sky here being absolutely illuminated by these multiple flashes. You said you see the flares coming down, but the horizon is just being brightly lit by these red and yellow explosions, the detonations are loud, shaking where we are. Just look at them across a long length of the horizon there. We are looking at a battlefront there that must be, I would say, several miles long, judging from where I'm standing. I'm seeing smoke on the ground as well. This has been, this level of firepower that we've seen like this is what the IDF uses when it's moving in on a new battle line. It lays down a huge barrage of fire like this uh, ahead of the troops on the ground so that they can't get booby trapped, so they can't get attacked. And they just blast an area with intense fire so that the ground forces can move in behind. So this seems potentially indicative here of the IDF trying to gain uh, a firmer and stronger control of another part, more neighborhoods in the northern end of Gaza. But the uh, horizon that is being illuminated, several miles of active battlefront there, Jake. Just, just look, at, look at these live pictures you're seeing. Never seen anything like this in, in the last few days. Nick, to the degree that you can, um, what, what area of Gaza might this be happening in? Our best analysis at the moment is that this is the northern part of Gaza. Um, it is probably behind uh, Beit Hanun, Beit Lihar, um, these kind of neighbor neighborhoods, possibly the northern end of uh, Al-Shati refugee camp. And as we know, the IDF has control of the, of the coastline and perhaps a mile or so coming in from the coastline. So that must be just a little inland um, of the western, northwestern part of Gaza. So our estimation, these balcon the balcony I'm standing on is shaking right now, our estimation, it, it is these towns and villages in the northern area of Gaza, sort of down to the Al-Shati refugee camp, which is a few miles north of Gaza City, where we know the troops are in, we know they're in Gaza City, we know they have uh, control deep. We were five miles um, into Gaza, way south, way to the left, if, as you look at these pictures, way south uh, of where you're seeing these explosions now just a couple of days ago. So this appears to be the IDF cementing, trying to cement it, its control of, the, of, of some of the sort of more central territory within the northern end of the Gaza Strip. I mean, I know it's difficult to even tell, but to the degree you can, are all the munitions we're seeing here IDF munitions or, or is Hamas returning fire as much as you can tell? I'm not hearing any small arms gunfire. 
Uh, I'm not seeing any rockets coming out, uh, and that's the only things we ever see of Hamas, the gunfire and the rocket fire. So at the moment, my estimation is everything we're looking at here is, is IDF fire going on to uh, suspected Hamas positions inside of Gaza. Um, some of this is tank fire. Those, I can hear the outgoing rounds of tank fire, but also we would expect that some of the big explosions we're seeing are probably artillery being fired from ships at sea. And I'm saying artillery fired from ships at sea because we're not hearing the artillery that is on the land uh, around us here in Starot. We're not hearing the artillery around us here firing out. So this is what we believe is happening at the moment without having confirmation, of course, from the IDF. From the very beginning uh, of this war, from uh, on October 7th, um, the IDF was announcing uh, and telling Palestinians to go south, to get out of the north. Uh, is that where Hamas was mainly based, in, in northern Gaza? They certainly had concentrations in the north, uh, and one of the reasons they had concentrations in the north was because they fired a lot of their rockets from the north, because that would give them a better chance of hitting their targets inside Israel, because it's a, it's a shorter distance. The longer the Hamas rockets are in the air, then that gives the IDF a greater opportunity to shoot them down. So Hamas would put their rockets at the north end of Gaza to have a better chance of firing them out, and therefore their infrastructure here was bigger. All right, Nick Robertson, uh, stay with me. Um, we're going to uh, come back to you in a sec. I, I want to bring in um, right now CNN national security analyst Beth Sanner, who was the former deputy director of national intelligence. Um, and Beth, you've been watching this. Nick says this is more military action than he has seen uh, in northern Gaza in days. Uh, what do you make of all this? Well, we've been expecting an expansion of the ground operations by the IDF. And so I think that, you know, they're just ready at this point to go ahead and push forward, having moved out or allowed the movement of, you know, most of the civilians, not all, but most of the civilians out of those areas. And at the same time, we're seeing, you know, the warnings of the expansion in the south around Khan Yunus. So, you know, they're narrowing down, I think, uh, where they think these main concentrations are and starting to, to really lay some, some ground fire pressure on as this groundwork expands because they're under a lot of pressure uh, from the international community to get going and from their own population. Huh. I'm also seeing uh, that there was uh, a barrage of rockets fired from Gaza on uh, the greater Tel Aviv area. This is at least according right. to the ha Haaretz newspaper. So some of this might be right. some of this might be a, a response, a retaliatory response to uh, Hamas firing uh, rockets on the Israeli population centers, which we should note has yeah. been going on for not since, since long before October 7th. Uh, Israel has been living under uh, Hamas rocket fire for years. Yeah, as you mentioned, Jake, I think today the barrage against Tel Aviv was, you know, on the high end of what has been seen in, in recent uh, days, weeks. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely they're going to try to pinpoint where that came from. But I do think this is a probably a broader thing that's underway. In addition to that, that's my guess. 
This, this is also happening as we're learning details about um, hostage negotiations um, between the United States and Israel and Hamas being mediated by Qatar, uh, which has uh, diplomatic relations uh, with Hamas. I mean, a bunch of members of Hamas live in Qatar uh, at some fancy hotels there. Sources tell CNN that the, the sides are all still trying to resolve several key points of a possible deal, including how many hostages might be released, how long a pause uh, in fighting, how long it would last. Um, would this, whatever's going on right now, whatever kinetic action is going on right now, would, this, would that complicate those efforts or, or is it really kind of irrelevant? Well, I think everything complicates the efforts, right? Um, uh, you know, I think that the IDF is prioritizing the destruction of Hamas. They are worried about the hostages, but I think, you know, their mission number one is to proceed and to proceed as quickly as possible, um, you know, with uh, the caveats there. But at the same time, you know, today we also heard a little bit letting up on getting more humanitarian aid in. In addition to the fuel trucks, there was also another statement about um, allowing at a lower level official saying allowing um, unlimited uh, numbers of humanitarian trucks to come in as long as the U.N. provided those lists. So so maybe, you know, that as they continue this ground offensive and it steps up, um, they're going to have to let the pressure also uh, the pressure valve off a little bit more in terms of allowing humanitarian aid in terms of creating this balance in these negotiations um, for the hostage releases. All right, Beth Sander, thanks so much. We're going to continue to watch this military action uh, near the uh, Israel-Gaza border. We're going to squeeze in a quick break. We'll, we'll be right back. We've been watching these live images of intense strikes over northern Gaza on the ground there. The United Nations is warning that, quote, massive outbreaks of infectious disease and hunger seem inevitable in Gaza, where many are now forced to drink clearly contaminated water and raw sewage is flowing through the streets. CNN's Nada Bashir gives us a closer look now at how families in Gaza are scraping together whatever they can to survive. A warning, some of what you're about to see could be disturbing. In the central Gazan city of Deir el-Balah, heavily bombarded by Israeli airstrikes for weeks now, the Naji family is forced to live amid the ruins of what once was their home. Khalid and his wife were rescued from beneath the rubble. Miraculously, they survived. But now, with nowhere to go, this family must make do with what little they had left. When we saw the catastrophe before us, we tried to find shelter at a school or anywhere safe, but it was already too crowded, Khalid says. There isn't anywhere safe to go here. As you can see, it's been raining and there is no aid getting in. I just want somewhere to shelter my family, my children. The UN has warned that some 70% of people in Gaza are now forced to drink contaminated water, raw sewage said to be flowing through the streets in some areas. And while the Israeli government says it will now allow two fuel tankers a day to enter Gaza to support water and sewage systems, the entire strip is said to be facing the immediate possibility of starvation, according to the UN World Food Programme. There is no electricity and no running water here. And as temperatures drop, this family has no choice but to sleep in the cold. 
Khalid's daughter says she put the sheet of nylon to protect her from the wind and the rain at night. These blankets, all the family has left to keep them warm. The rest of their belongings, tangled and buried amid scorched blackened rubble. Across northern and central Gaza, scenes of destruction are all that remain. Civilians told to evacuate southwards. The Israeli military says it is targeting Hamas and allowing for evacuation corridors. But even in the south, there is no escape from this punishing war. The ruins you see here are homes in the southern city of Khan Yunus. Amid the destruction, members of the Abu Zanad family standing helpless, loved ones still buried under the rubble. Every second of every minute, there's another massacre, Herni says. Where are the humanitarian ceasefires? Displaced people, women and children, our family members, are here buried underneath this home. They escaped the massacres and war in northern Gaza. They told us that the south would be safe. On the grounds of southern Gaza's Nasser Hospital, another funeral prayer is held, closed with a message of peace amid unfathomable loss. With fears growing of an expanded ground incursion said to be targeting Hamas in the south, after Israeli forces dropped leaflets near Khan Yunus, warning people to move to known shelters on Thursday. But with some 1.5 million people already displaced, there is nowhere safe to turn. And as each hour ticks by, there is only more uncertainty and more tragedy. The wounded rush through the hospital's crowded halls. Children, battered and bloody, sharing whatever space is left in this panic-filled emergency room. But as doctors in the south race to rescue the wounded, survivors further north, just like Khalid and his family, struggle to come to terms with this now shattered reality. Khalid says neighbors thought he was dead when they pulled him from the rubble. Now, he says, he wishes he too had been killed in the airstrike. In Gaza, only the dead are at peace. Look, Jake, we've been hearing from the UN's humanitarian office calling for longer pauses in fighting to allow for crucial, essential humanitarian aid to get into the Gaza Strip. As we saw in Nick's reporting there, we are still seeing heavy bombardment across northern and central uh, Gaza even tonight. Heavy bombardment also ongoing, of course, across southern Gaza too. And now, as there are beginning to be indications that we may well see a further spread of this ground incursion to southern Gaza. There is huge concern of the deteriorating humanitarian situation, huge worries from UN agencies and other aid groups that this situation facing Gazan civilians who are already displaced could begin to get much, much worse. Jake? Nana Bashir, thank you so much. The remains of a peace activist previously believed to have been taken hostage by Hamas have been found in her home. 74-year-old Vivian Silver, a Canadian-Israeli, was murdered in her home in Kibbutz Be'eri on October 7th. Silver co-founded the group Women Wage Peace after the war in Gaza broke out in 2014. She also served on the board of B'Tselem, an Israeli human rights organization. Hundreds of family, friends, and fellow activists of all faiths gathered in Kibbutz Gezer Thursday at a memorial service honoring Silver. Her son, Yonatan, said, quote, it is not only me who has been orphaned. Your many friends were orphaned. The country that you adopted at a young age 
and a movement was orphaned. The peace movement. May Vivian's memory be a blessing. And we also have breaking news this hour. Police in New Hampshire say there were multiple victims involved in a shooting at New Hampshire State Hospital in Concord. This is just coming in. We're back with more in a moment. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. And we're following some breaking news for you now. New Hampshire State Police say there are multiple victims after a shooting at a hospital in Concord. I want to bring in CNN's Polo Sandoval in uh, studio here with me. Polo, what are you learning? Yeah, I wish we could tell you more at this point. This is a situation that was just confirmed by authorities about 15 or 20 minutes ago. What we know, according to New Hampshire State Police, via a statement that they posted on social media a short while ago, is that troopers are responding to a shooting that took place at New Hampshire uh, State Hospital, as we're trying to get you right now, uh, that statement that was just posted. Troopers are currently investigating a shooting at New Hampshire State Hospital in Concord. There are multiple victims. Additional updates will be released when it's available. Uh, I can tell you right now that on its website, this facility says that it is an acute psychiatric hospital, that it assists patients with uh, mental illness, also provides uh, inpatient services as well. It's about 60 or 70 miles away from Boston, which is where some of these aerial pictures are actually coming from, Jake. As you're able to look at it, you will be able to, able to see a large uh, significant police presence that includes state troopers, various ambulances there as well. So again, New Hampshire State Police at this point confirming just a few moments ago that this is a, uh, excuse me, that uh, a shooting that took place at New Hampshire State Hospital in Concord, multiple victims. And again, these pictures taken just moments ago showing a large and significant police presence as we're trying to make those phone calls right now, Jake, get you more information. Uh, but for now, this is all that we can confirm from authorities. Right. All we can do is uh, share the limited information we have at any given moment. Thank you so much, Paula. Thanks, Jake. Thank you so much. We will obviously continue to follow this situation in New Hampshire and bring you the facts as we learn them. We're also standing by to see President Biden. He's leaving California after that high stakes meeting with the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping. We're going to squeeze in a quick break. We'll be right back. Embattled congressman and serial fabulous George Santos could see his congressional career cut short. Today, the House Ethics Committee chairman, a Republican, introduced a resolution to expel Santos and a 
Growing number of lawmakers are saying they are ready to vote to send him packing. This after an investigation by the Ethics Committee found Santos, quote, sought to fraudulently exploit every aspect of his House candidacy for his own personal financial profit, unquote. Former Congressman Adam Kinzinger served 12 years in the House as a Republican representing Illinois. He's the author of the new book, Renegade, Defending Democracy and Liberty in Our Divided Country. And he joins us now. Congratulations on the book, Congressman. Good to see you. Hey, thanks. It's been fun. It's been fun. Thanks. So in your book, you say that the George Santos story marked an especially low moment for a Republican candidate for Congress. So what was your reaction uh, to the report from the House Ethics Committee? I mean, it was awful. I, you know, look, at least I, and I, this is going to sound kind of jaded to say it, but at least in like past ethics things, you've seen members of Congress that at least make an effort to hide it, to like wash the money or launder it. He basically was taking payments way beyond what people should be giving to a campaign, converting it directly to his personal bank account and paying for OnlyFans and also, you know, Botox. It's just like he wasn't even trying to hide it. It was it was so egregious that I think it would be almost impossible. You know, I know these Republicans, it would be almost impossible for them to say, well, the majority is so tight that we need to keep him around. I mean, the reality is the majority's tight. It'll be tight with or without him. And uh, I think they're going to have to get rid of him. In the book, uh, you write that 9-11 was a call to your generation. And, and you write, quote, I thought we faced uh, a challenge to our values that could be reduced to a single question. Is it important to get ahead or is it important to do what is right? Unquote. Um, what do you think your generation, how do you think your generation is answering that question? Is it important to get ahead or is it important to do what's right? Not your generation writ large, but your generation in Congress. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's sad. It's become, it's, a, it's important to like just stay in power, not to do what's right. I mean, every one of these, well, the vast majority, I guess, almost every one of these, I know them. You know, I have had conversations with most of these people in the last five years, these Republicans in Congress, and have at least heard from a good number of them like, oh, what we're doing, you know, I wish Donald Trump would go away or I wish we could talk about spending and not, you know, just talk about the personality of one man. But it's like they're constantly going over this like personal moral red line. So I think I would say the current generation of, of members of Congress, particularly on my side of the aisle, are failing. It's, it's becoming about being famous about rage for fundraising, which is frightening because at some point you've got to dial rage down or rage gets out of control. And we're kind of at that point where it's about to get out of control because you just feed the beast constantly and eventually the beast uh, snaps back at you. An interesting part of your book, you write that you, you, you feel like you bear some responsibility for January 6th because, quote, I was a participant in and witness to the GOP's gradual descent into a dysfunctional and destructive force in our politics, unquote. How do you think that you, you compromised your values uh, and, and were part of the descent of the GOP? Well, I think it's important to talk about it. And, you know, look, I, I, I was one of the most outspoken against Donald Trump, but there were times where I'm like, oh, I should say something and I wouldn't say it. Uh, you know, looking now at the forest instead of the trees when you're actually in it, you're like, well, I've, I, I can look at that and see how the, the GOP was slipping, times I didn't speak out about it. I voted against the first impeachment, and I, and that was basically 
sheer cowardice because I didn't want, I knew I'd lose my job after the first impeachment. And uh, so I found a reason, I found an excuse, a nuance, which was the speed that Nancy Pelosi tried to put the impeachment through. I seized on that as a way to vote against it. And so, look, I, I'm, I'm comfortable and I'm able to look at myself in the mirror and say, look, I'm fighting the good fight. But it's important to announce, like, look, there were times where I was proxy to this and there were times where I enabled this. And that's what we have to have people give them license to admit so that they can come around on the other side and help fight against the, the monster that was either created or in some cases they helped create. You're a combat veteran. You served in the Air Force in Iraq and Afghanistan. You write that you have watched an alarmist quote. Many politicians speak and behave as if Congress itself were a battlefield and if they, as if they had been elected not to serve the public and protect the Constitution, but to score points for their side no matter the cost, unquote. Uh, this week, a Republican lawmaker accused uh, former Speaker McCarthy of giving him a sucker elbow to his kidneys. In, in the book, you write about two physical uh, altercations with McCarthy, not really altercations, but times that he kind of, well, tell us what happened. Yeah, so twice. So imagine just I'm kind of standing in the back of the house, leaning over that gold railing, just kind of watching what's going on, talking to people that walk by. And I get wham, I get shoulder checked. Never had that happen on the floor of the house. And I turn and Kevin McCarthy's already passed me. And my initial reaction was like, oh, we used to be more friends. And I'm like, wait, we haven't been friends in a year. That was serious. And then like three weeks later, we're passing each other basically on that same walkway in the house. And he leans over and shoulder checks me again, like when you're in fourth grade. And it was just like, what a child. And so the interesting thing is, what are the chances that I write about this in a book that comes out? He does it to uh, this guy from Tennessee. And then he's saying, like, it was an accident. Like, that's never happened to me from anybody else. Kevin McCarthy has compromised his values so much that he's lashing out now on the people that are calling him out. And honestly, I, I, I hope he gets help. I think he needs to because his identity was wrapped up in being a speaker. And I was a threat to that in January 6th. And uh, others are a threat to that now. They've actually taken it away. So he's, he's an angry man. And, and uh, you know, when you lash out physically in this job, uh, it goes to show something's broken. House Speaker Mike Johnson just announced that he's going to publicly release all Capitol Hill security footage from January 6th as long as it does not contain any uh, sensitive security information. Um, it, this seems a, an obvious move to, to please uh, the far right-wing members uh, of the House Republican co Conference. Um, what's your reaction to that? Well, the problem is 40,000 hours of this tapes are not, you know, people aren't going to watch 40,000 hours. They're going to get snippets that can be taken out of context like they already have from certain news outlets. And, uh, so, you know, it can be, but keep in mind, Tucker Carlson has had this stuff for a year. He did like one or two shows on just some minor things and then went crickets. So I think it's going to be pretty hard to look at what's going on and say that was an FBI insurrection or that was Antifa or that was method actors. It's like, okay, well, Donald Trump called them all heroes now and he's pardoned them all. So which is it? Is this the FBI or is this heroes that Donald Trump's going to pardon? But the thing I worry about is, like, look, fine, people can see it because you're going to see what I saw. It's, it's horrific. But there are going to be parts that are cherry picked by Alex Jones and some others that unfortunately will be you'll see out in the ether now. There's a, there's been a real rise in anti-Semitism as of late, um, both on the left. We see uh, college campuses, professors um, and uh, some student organizations. And I'm not talking about criticism of Israel. That's, you know. Netanyahu, the IDF, 
criticism of that's fine, but, you know, celebrating what happened on October 7th and the like. Um, we've also seen uh, some real uh, rise in anti-Semitism on the right. Um, I'm talking about Elon Musk uh, and, and the voices, um, conservative media voices, uh, embracing um, white, uh, dis, you know, this, this white replacement theory, white genocide, all, all of it, supposedly Jews are pushing all the buttons and levers. What's your response to this? Well, first off, it's the horseshoe theory. It's the far left and the far right are actually the same people. They don't know it, but they're the same people fighting the same battle. You know, I mean, it's if anybody's still advertising on Twitter or X, I don't know why they would. The CEO is clearly anti-Semitic, doesn't hide it anymore, feeds that impulse of people. And I'll tell you, the Democrats and and take this from somebody that lived through a version of this in my party. uh You've got to tamp down on this kind of – there is some pro-Hamas sympathy out there. Um, you've got to tamp down on that because I remember when a certain guy, Dana Rohrbacher, was the only pro-Russian sympathizer in the GOP. And everybody told me like, oh, ignore Dana. He's just like a one-off. And now the, you know, the majority of the GOP seems to be sympathetic to Russia. You've got to kick, you've got to kick this in the grave. You've got to stand up, not worry about the political implications of you know, Hamas supporters – just tell the truth. This is a real anti-Semitism is on a serious rise. I don't understand why. I don't understand why the it's been, quote unquote, the Jews that have been behind every problem in the world. But this has got to be tackled seriously. And if anybody is still advertising on platforms that promote anti-Semitism, you have to stop. And college campuses have got to get aggressive about cracking down on anti-Semitism on their campus, as aggressive as they would be about like anti-Muslim behavior. Adam Kinzinger, thank you so much. Good luck with the book, sir. Good to see you. His book, Renegade, Defending Democracy and Liberty in Our Divided Country. It's out now. Check it out. It's a great read. Busy afternoon. We're standing by for Air Force One to be wheels up from San Francisco after President Biden's meeting with Xi Jinping and other leaders of Pacific Rim Nations. I'm in New York. CNN is learning new information about the federal investigation into the city's Democratic mayor, Eric Adams, and the homes of AIDS raided by the FBI. Stay with us. In our law and justice lead, two new names are coming to light as part of the criminal investigation into Democratic New York City Mayor Eric Adams' campaign fundraising. A source confirms to CNN that another one of Adams' aides had her home raided by the FBI as well. This as the New York Times is identifying a former Turkish Airlines official whose home was also searched. CNN's Bryn Gingrass is here. And Bryn, this makes three people with ties to Mayor Adams, whose homes have been raided. The first we knew of was Adams' chief fundraiser, Brianna Suggs. Who are the other two? Yeah, well, if you remember, our team has reported that on that day, November 2nd, a dozen people's homes were searched. And Adams was asked about this earlier this week when he held a news conference and he wouldn't give any details. So it's no surprise that some of these names are starting to trickle out. But to answer your question, one of those names is Rana Abasoba. Now, she works in the administration's International Affairs Office as a director. And she also has been with Adams since he was even mayor when he was Brooklyn Borough President. In this role, she sort of acts as a liaison between uh, foreign dignitaries, does the vetting process. And so she, you know, there's questions at what sort of relationship she has made while in his administration. Now, Jake, if you're one of those people who's following this story closely, you also might remember when this sort of investigation came to light not too long ago, there was this, you know, statement that was put up by the mayor's office saying that someone had acted inappropriately in their office. That is her. She apparently 
got wind about you know this happening to her. She was nervous. She was going to be part of this investigation. She was put on leave from his office. So mm. that is her. The second person is Cenk Okal. Now he worked, as you mentioned, for Turkish Airlines, and he also was part of the mayor's transition team when he came into being mayor of New York City. Now all this circles, all this leads to Turkey. That is what we know from uh, sources that federal investigators are looking into the mayor and his campaign's relationships with Turkey officials in Turkey and also Turkish American officials here, whether or not he was receiving illegal funds through his campaign and whether or not he was currying favors for uh, Turkish officials when it comes to the opening of the Turkish consulate here in New York City. Now, when he had this news conference on Monday, he did address some of these allegations. No one has been accused of wrongdoing. It's very important to point that out. But he did address some of these questions. I want you to hear some of that. I did not speak to any of the individual uh, in the FDNY. I did not circumvent the commissioner. Uh, the commissioner was the person that I asked, uh, can you look into uh, this? And that was all I spoke with. And so that's addressing the Turkish consulate questions that are circulating about what's being investigated here. But as far as the campaign donor, um, donor donations that he has been received are allegedly uh, is which is being investigated he says that there are no straw donors in his administration no quid pro so he's addressed these questions however he hasn't really given enough answers a lot of you know he's just saying we're cooperating with the investigation so mm -hmm. we'll see where this leads but again no surprise that we're hearing about these names coming out all right, all right. interesting stuff Stay on it Brent Gingras, thank you so much new details are just coming in on the breaking news that shooting in a hospital in new hampshire we're told that the suspect is dead we're told also that there are multiple victims. We'll have right more right after this quick break. Stay with us. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Off the top this hour, the breaking news is shooting at a hospital in New Hampshire. State officials there said that the suspect is dead the situation is contained and tragically there are multiple victims police are doing a sweep of the hospital right now we're going to stay on top of the story and bring you the facts as we get them plus newly reported audio of donald trump just two months after the january 6th insurrection discussing what he expected if he got his wish and had been able to join the mob at the capitol that day and leading this hour anti-semitism pushed by right-wing media figures with little apparent pushback in their conservative circles. Vile comments spewed by some of the biggest names with major megaphones, beginning with the richest man in the world. Now, we've heard a lot from the Jewish community since October 7th about how shocking it has been to hear so much anti-Semitism from traditionally progressive places, such as liberal organizations and Ivy League schools. They're not talking about criticism of the Israeli government or the IDF's military campaign in Gaza. They're talking about praise for Hamas's savage terrorist attacks on Israeli and Jewish citizens on October 7th. The New York branch of the Democratic Socialists of America called those October 7th attacks on civilians, quote, resistance. They have since apologized. And then there are multiple incidents on college campuses praising those terrorist attacks. 
On October 8th, one Columbia University professor wrote an essay that uses language that sure sounds a lot like praise for Hamas's attacks, including for a, quote, innovative Palestinian resistance, which early on Saturday morning launched a surprise attack on Israel by air, land, and sea. Almost all of the essay lauds the attack as a great, quote, stunning victory of the Palestinian resistance over the Israeli military as a, quote, historic event. Now, remember, this is an attack where 1,200 Israelis, Americans, and others, most of them civilians, were slaughtered, including babies and children and the elderly, where women and girls were raped, where an estimated 240 individuals, most of them civilians, were kidnapped, but this was apparently worthy of praise for innovation by an Ivy League professor. When that Columbia professor was asked about his comment, he argued that we were taking his words out of context, that the words were meant to convey the surprise nature of the attack, and that he decried the horrifying toll on all sides. Mm -hmm. At Cornell, an associate professor said he felt exhilarated with the news. What has Hamas done? Hamas has shifted the balance of power. Hamas has punctured the illusion of invincibility. It was exhilarating. It was exhilarating. It was energizing. It was exhilarating. It was energizing. That professor has since apologized. He has said he opposes anti-Semitism and he has taken a leave of absence, according to the Cornell Review. But amidst all of this from the left, there has also been quite a bit of anti-Semitism exploding on the right among conservative media figures, mainstream Republican officials, and Elon Musk, voicing some pretty nasty anti-Semitic tropes about powerful Jews supposedly waging a war on white people. White replacement theory, for example. This is the same deranged theory that led to the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, the deadliest act of anti-Semitic violence in the history of the United States. Or the just-as-deranged theory of white genocide, the crazy theory that there's an organized plot to get rid of whites through intermarriage and through mass murder, and again, the deranged idea that the Jews are behind it. It is insane, and even worse, it's dangerous because there are fragile, simple minds that believe this junk, and then they take these matters into their own hands, too often violently. We asked our media reporter, Oliver Darcy, to take a look into all of this for us. All in on woke. Anti-Semitic rhetoric is finding a home in right-wing media. Since the onset of the Israel-Hamas war, a handful of influential talk show hosts have spread anti-Semitic tropes to their millions of followers. One of the main charges? The disgraceful notion that a spike in anti-Semitism is merely Jewish people getting a taste of their own medicine after supposedly supporting anti-white sentiment. A reprehensible conspiracy theory that has been denounced by the Anti-Defamation League. Any more comments? Take Elon Musk, one of the world's richest men who has supported a host of right-wing conspiracy theories. Musk replied to a user online, publicly endorsing that notion, writing this week, You have said the actual truth. It's not just limited to Musk. Right-wing media figures Tucker Carlson, Candace Owens, and Charlie Kirk have also peddled this idea. It is true that some of the largest financiers of left-wing anti-white causes have been 
Jewish Americans. Kirk has also floated the conspiracy theory that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu knew about the October 7th terror attack but chose to do nothing. I'm not, I'm not willing to say to go so far that saying that Netanyahu knew or there was intelligence here. But I think some questions need to be asked. Was there a stand-down order? Was there a stand-down order? Six hours? I don't believe it. Meanwhile, Carlson and Owens have criticized Harvard donors for supposedly supporting anti-white racism, framing them as hypocrites for now being upset over anti-Semitism. Well, wait a second. If the biggest donors that say Harvard have decided, well, we're going to shut it down now. Where were you the last 10 years when they were going for white genocide? You were allowing this. And then I found myself really hating those people. People that are asking the question is, where were you yeah. as we have endured all of you this? You were paying for it, actually. Right. You were paying for it. You were, you were paying for it. Because you were, were calling okay my children immoral for their skin color. You paid for that. Yeah, and and so why shouldn't I be mad at you? I don't understand. Some conservatives have pushed back against the anti-Semitic rhetoric being spread by their peers. Ben Shapiro, co-founder of The Daily Wire, which employs Candace Owens, ripped her earlier commentary as disgraceful during a recent speech. The question is about Candace Owens. I think her behavior during this has been disgraceful. Without a doubt. I think she's been absolutely disgraceful. I think that, I think that her, her faux sophistication on these particular issues has been ridiculous. Owens appeared to fire back in a response drenched in anti-Semitism, suggesting Shapiro had opted for wealth over virtue, quoting a Bible verse saying, you cannot serve both God and money. CNN reached out to the Daily Wire for comment and has not gotten a reply. The rhetoric comes as anti-Semitic attacks are surging across the U.S. and around the world. Jonathan Greenblatt, the head of the ADL, spoke out against the commentary coursing through right-wing media. Responding to Musk, Greenblatt said, At a time when anti-Semitism is exploding in America and surging around the world, it is indisputably dangerous to use one's influence to validate and promote anti-Semitic theories. And Jake, this is uh, really ugly rhetoric. It never used to be uh, voiced by some of the loudest uh, people in right-wing media, but now it's, it's all too common. And I think we're getting numb to the fact that you have someone like Tucker Carlson or Candace Owens, people with millions of followers, who are just spreading this type of hate to their to their fans. Well, not just that. I mean, these are all people who are very influential when it comes to major Republican office holders or presidential candidates. I mean, very, very powerful people. But I just want to understand something. Mm-hmm. Is the argument that I just heard there that because maybe there are some Jewish alumni who gave money to Harvard because they're just trying to be philanthropic uh, to their alma mater, that that was funding white genocide, that that was insulting white people? I don't, I mean, just to give money to a college to help fund scholarship programs or a, a university, that, is that what the argument is? It sounds absolutely crazy and, and, and unhinged to people who are not immersed in the right-wing media universe, but that is effectively the argument that they have been supporting Harvard as Harvard has supposedly been waging this anti-white uh, you know, campaign on the college campus. And now they're upset uh, when they're seeing people uh, voice anti-Israeli sentiment, but that they did nothing, supposedly, uh, when, when the, the supposed anti-white campaign was being Just waged. by giving alumni donations? By giving alumni donations, yeah. That's just crazy. It, it is crazy, but it is common now in, in this right-wing media space. I mean, but we have literally seen the deadliest act against Jews in this country because of that crazy white genocide, white replacement theory, because people were spreading it. Some insane person, Robert Bowers, went into a synagogue and killed more Jews than have ever been killed in this country before. We've seen yeah. that, and people are still pushing this. Yeah, I mean, you've seen time and time again, to be, to be 
Frank here, Tucker Carlson voicing or giving voice to dangerous conspiracy theories, theories that experts have said can lead to violence. And he does not seem to care. And a lot of other people, frankly, do not seem to care about the repercussions that their words can have. And these are false. Also, we should know these are mm-hmm. false theories. Oliver Darcy, thank you. Let's go now to Democratic Congressman uh, Dan Goldman, uh, who represents New York. Um, uh, Congressman, I just want to um, first uh, get your reaction to the report we just did, um, which started with uh, voices on the left, uh, including at Columbia University and Cornell University uh, and the Democratic Socialists of America, New York branch, uh, spewing uh, praise for Hamas or what sounded like praise for Hamas in many instances. And then, of course, uh, these right wing media figures pushing uh, white replacement theory, white genocide, blaming that on Jews. Uh, You're a prominent member of Congress who's Jewish. Um, What's your reaction? Well, we've known that there's been this strain of anti-Semitism on the right for some time, Charlottesville being uh, the prime example of that. What we have seen over the last six weeks is a latent anti-Semitism bubbling over in, into the public sphere that's coming from the far fringe left. Um, it's sort of the horseshoe theory that meets around anti-Semitism where you have the extreme left and the extreme right, uh, both of which for different reasons uh, seem to hate Jewish people. It is incredibly disheartening, Jake, that in the aftermath of the most brutal, horrific attack, genocidal terrorist attack on Jews in Israel on October 7th, that rather than rally around the Jewish community and Israel, what we are seeing on college campuses and elsewhere uh, all around the country and certainly in New York City is a rise in anti-Semitism. And it is somewhat bewildering and perplexing for me. uh, And it's very deflating and disheartening to see. No, obviously, there are a lot of people who don't support what the Israel Defense Forces uh, is doing uh, in uh, Gaza. Um, uh, Overnight, one of your offices was vandalized. I'm not saying that this is an appropriate response, but overnight, one of your offices was vandalized. Phrases such as blood on your hands, free Palestine, uh, spray painted on your office. Um, What can you tell us about what happened? What's your reaction to that? And then separately, I would like to know what your response would be to a rational response. person coming to you and saying, I really disagree with your your position on uh, the Israeli response to 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 October 7th. Yeah, and that's a conversation that I uh, really want to have with my constituents in my district. And unfortunately, uh, they're using vandalism uh, and various uh, attacks and, and harassment against me on my office. Um, my staff showed up this morning to see that. My staff is there every day trying to serve the constituents here. I signed up for public office. They did not. And it is egregious and dangerous for people to be doing this in a threatening way uh, to public servants who are trying to help the community in every way possible. Um, the reality is that uh, there, is, there was that horrible terrorist attack on October 7th. Hamas has shown us who it is, both by that attack and by the statements that their leaders have made afterwards, that they will continue to do that over and over and over because their sole objective is to eliminate Israel and kill Jews. That means Hamas is not a feasible partner for peace or a two-state solution. 
And because of that, Israel has not only the right, but the obligation to, uh, to defeat Hamas and eliminate them. And that will not only be better for Israel, but it will be better for the Palestinian people. Hamas uses their own people in Gaza as human shields. Uh, they put their military equipment in hospitals, in schools, in tunnels. They have siphoned off billions of dollars designed to go to the people for their own terror network. Um, and Israel has to be careful because notwithstanding all of those war crimes that Hamas is committing, it is tragic and devastating to see the loss of innocent lives. So Israel has every right and obligation to go after Hamas uh, and to eliminate them uh, within the framework of the laws of war and making sure that the civilians are protected as much as possible and get humanitarian aid. But Hamas has been in control of Gaza for 15 years, and they have led the Palestinian people into this despair and this destitution uh, that is so crushing to them. So the silver lining here, Jake, is that if Hamas is eliminated, then hopefully we can rebuild Gaza with a viable government interested in peace and interested in a two-state solution. But Hamas is not that. Um, and then lastly, uh, you uh, sent a letter to President Biden um, touching on something that we discussed uh, at length on Wednesday on the show, which is uh, what uh, Ben Gavir and uh, Smotrich, these two far-right, anti-Arab, bigot <clears throat> cabinet members uh, in the Netanyahu coalition are permitting in the West Bank and in Israel when it comes to the repression and even uh, killing uh, of uh, Palestinians and uh, Israeli Arabs. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could talk about that, the letter that you wrote about the West Bank to President Biden and how that does not, um, that's not, that's not going to allow a, a two-state solution either. That's right. And uh, Senator Booker and I wrote the letter together. The two of us were the only members of Congress who were in Israel on October 7th. Uh, and we both are strongly in support of Israel. It's right to exist. It's right to defend itself and the important need to eliminate Hamas. However, Hamas attacked from Gaza, and that's where the war is, and that's where the war needs to stay. Uh, there can be no vigilante justice by civilians or settlers uh, of the extremist nature, and Ben Gavir and Smotrich, as you mentioned, are their leaders, uh, that they cannot be uh, permitted to uh, use their, their own uh, means and methods to try to uh, take advantage of this situation to kill Palestinians, to expand their settlements, and that there is no room for error here. Uh, Israel has to be very strategic. They have to be very targeted. Um, and they have to be very focused on what the job at hand here, and, th and that is eliminate Hamas. It is not to start a multi-front war in the West Bank. And ultimately, the, the overarching objective, as we just discussed, is a two-state solution. And it is essential that Israel demonstrate that it will be a viable and meaningful partner to any other Palestinian government that is willing to be a good faith partner as well in a two-state solution. And this kind of vigilante justice in the West Bank uh, is very counterproductive to that goal. Congressman Dan Goldman of New York, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, Donald Trump's legal team is bracing for bad news, a possible decision that could be announced any minute now and impact his 2024 presidential campaign. Stay with us.
In our Law and Justice lead, former President Trump's legal team is bracing for a loss in a 2024 ballot disqualification case in Colorado. A judge is expected to rule today on whether to disqualify him and keep his name off the state's presidential ballot. Joining us now, CNN's Kristen Holmes to explain. Kristen, this is certainly the longest of long shots, regardless if it's an initial loss for Trump. That's right, Jake. And that's why Donald Trump's team is optimistic in the long run. Now, as you say, they are bracing for a loss today, so much so that I'm told by sources that they've already written out an appeal that they plan to file immediately if and when the court rules against them. But they do believe that this could be or will be turned over an appeal. One source telling me they think it could even go all the way up to the Supreme Court, but that will eventually get overturned. Now, the reason for that is there's a few. One being that they point to these other cases similar to this that were brought in New Hampshire, Minnesota, Michigan. None of them made it to trial. They were all dismissed before that. They also have an argument with the fact that the cases in Georgia and Washington, those election subversion cases, are still ongoing. Trump has not been convicted in either of those cases, and he's not been charged with the crime of insurrection. Now, no surprise, Jake, they have accused this judge of being politically biased. They asked her to recuse herself over a $100 donation she made to a liberal group that was for in the aftermath of January 6, she refused to do so, saying that she did not know the group's mission and that she believed she could still rule fairly. Again, they are bracing for a loss today, but in the long term, this is something they think that they will prevail on. All right, Kristen Holmes, thanks so much. There is new reported audio of Donald Trump recorded two months after the January 6 insurrection. Hear what he thought would happen if he did manage to get to the Capitol and say something to the rioters. Stay with us. When our law and justice lead coincides with our 2024 and political leads, it's a safe bet that the subject is one Donald Trump. The New York Times' Maggie Haberman is is here with me to share her insights into Trump world in a way that only she can, really. Well, thanks. I I think. I appreciate that, Jake. It's okay. So Trump keeps trying to rewrite the history of what happened on January 6th. So I want to play uh, a recording of what he told ABC News uh, Chief Washington Correspondent John Carl for Carl's uh, new book. It's called Tired of Winning. Donald Trump and the end of the grand old party. So this is about Trump's supposed desire to go to the U.S. Capitol during the riot. Take a listen. You told them you were going to go up to the Capitol. Were you just... I was, no, I was going to, and the Secret Service said, you can't. And then by the time I would have, and then when I got back, I saw... I wanted to go back. I was thinking about going back during the problem to stop the problem, doing it myself. Secret Service didn't like that idea too much. So, so what? And I could so, have done that, and you know what? I would have been very well received. Don't forget, the people that went to Washington that day, in my opinion, they went because they thought the election was rigged. That's why they went. <laughs> so, there's so much to like. Uh, there's a lot there. There's, <laughs> there's a lot there. First of all, they thought the election was rigged because he had been lying to them about for months about the election being rigged. Um, I love also how he calls the insurrection. A problem, the problem. Um, but he never really says what he was going to do there. Do you know what he was going to do there? No, and I find it slight. Look, I, I do believe that he in- wanted to march initially uh, before the riot broke out. I yeah. think that is true. All of us have had reporting on that. We had reporting on it in real time. Uh, the idea that he thought that he could go back because he was thinking he could maybe make it better. I don't know why he wouldn't have just said more of that on Twitter at the right. time, if that was actually yeah, that's uh, revisionism. What, he, what he was thinking. So I think one piece of that is real, and one piece of that uh, sounds uh, not at all comporting with anything else we know. 
I, I, I wish I, I really want to know what he thought he was going to do. I, I don't think that he necessarily had that thought before he was articulating it to John Carl. It's I don't know that we will ever know the answer. I actually was struck by that audio, though, where he says, in my opinion, in the middle of it. Well, no, because he's been he's been leaning on in my opinion right. a little bit more recently uh, since the indictment. Oh, in my opinion, they yeah. went because they thought the election yeah. was rigged. That's yeah. why they and went. And I'm a little, I'm struck that he was using that language that early. Because that interview was in 2021, I believe. Oh, in my opinion. Interesting. In my opinion. And he calls it the problem. Right. Well, it's, uh, that's, the that, problem. That, is a, that is a euphemism. Yeah. It was. So related to that, the federal judge presiding over his election subversion case. Um, today denied his legal team's request to remove languages in the indictment about the January 6th riot. They heard it's inflammatory. Do you think any of these cases are going to go to trial before the election? I do. I think that the, uh, well, so something has happened in the last couple of hours. One is that Fawnie Willis in Fulton County, Georgia, uh, has asked for the trial to be set, I believe, on August 5th in that case. What's fascinating about that is it suggests that she thinks that the documents case in Florida is not going to happen at all before the election because there's going to be a hearing on that in March about whether to move it. I do think that the federal trial on election subversion charges is going to happen in March or April at the latest. And I think we will see several months of a trial. I don't think people have quite gotten their heads around what it's going to look like when there is the the potentially the presumptive front runner for the yeah. Republic nomination, Republican nomination sitting in a courtroom every day. You have to attend as a criminal. Yeah. In March or April. In March or April for many, many weeks. Going and this forward. is the uh, this is the classified documents case. No, that's the J6 case. That's the January 6th. That's the that is the January 6th case before Tanya Chutkin in Washington. The documents case, which is Eileen Cannon, which is in Fort Pierce. Oh, that one. That one. That one. I I believe she will delay that past the election. If the Georgia one goes ahead, and I'm skeptical of that in this time frame of August, then that would basically mean Trump is on trial the entire general election. And that's an astonishing thing to get your head around. Uh, Yesterday, a New York appeals court lifted the gag order that's supposed to keep Trump from talking Mm -hmm. about uh, the court staff, like the clerk, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm Uh, for the ongoing, this is the civil fraud trial. I, I'm really, and I have to apologize to you people. I'm sorry. There are so many court cases. There are a lot. And there's two gag orders. I mean, you're talking about one. It's very one. difficult. And we really, I, I'm sorry to, to be, it's, it's tough. It's tough to keep all this straight in your head. I have a difficult time and it's my job. Anyway, today's Trump's lawyers filed papers arguing, quote, silencing a presidential candidate's core political speech at the height of his political pan- campaign is the essence of censorship. I mean, they have a point, but by the same token, he does say things that put people's lives uh, in danger. He, is, he has gotten more leeway than almost any criminal defendant. I'm not saying with similar circumstances. There have never been sur- similar circumstances. But any criminal defendant who was making these kinds of statements would almost certainly see some kind of a gag or see some kind of a crackdown from a judge. If and not see jail time. Kind of, or see jail or see fines. And he has actually gotten an enormous amount of leeway. Now, the circumstances are what they are. He is, he is the front-running candidate for the Republican nomination. And so... It is in the, against the backdrop of a political campaign, although it's a campaign he chose to run. Uh, but I, it's not surprising he's doing it that way. You're seeing every time that one of these gag orders is stayed, and a, a judge sets it aside pending another decision, he immediately starts making the same attacks that he had right. been barred from doing before. And I think he thinks that plays to his advantage. And the idea that this clerk has anything to do, I mean, the judge is the person making these decisions. The judge is the one calling the shots. Not this woman, but he loves to attack women. Young women, especially. I think that I think that there is a lot that is very different in the New York State trial than there is going to be in the federal trial. One last thing: the man that violently beat former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, with a hammer, was found guilty in federal court. David DePap now faces decades in prison. 
as well as the state trial where charges include attempted murder. And Trump continues to make light of the attack. Here's just one example. Who will stand up to crazy Nancy Pelosi who ruined San Francisco. How's her husband doing, by the way? Anybody know? I mean, the guy is going to be charged for attempted murder. What is, what is remotely funny about that? Uh, Trump finds a punchline in a lot of violence. This is not the first time we have seen it. We have seen him glorifying violence since his first campaign. It has now become so mainstreamed that it almost doesn't resonate, although it is very jarring to hear people laughing at that line. And to your point, he is making fun of somebody who received a really dangerous and potentially life-threatening injury during a home invasion. If the same thing was done to Donald Trump and anyone dared to make a joke about it, you'd never hear the end of it. I think that is one of the things that is even worse now than it was in 16 or 20, 100%. which is the weaponization uh, of, his, of his rhetoric. I think everything is treated by him as fair game in a way that is even more expansive than it was then. Yeah. Maggie, always good to see you. Thanks so much. We're keeping a, a two pro t- an eye on two protests happening on the Friday evening. Major cities on the East Coast. On the left, you see a pro-Palestinian demonstration uh, near Union Station in D.C. Uh, and in New York City, another pro-Palestinian uh, rally at Bryant Park uh, in Midtown. Expect more scenes such as these over the weekend. We're back in a moment. In our 2024 lead, cue the music, if we can. Less than two months into... Oh, we're going to go right now uh, into... Look at those live pictures of the protests. Uh, we have uh, pro-Palestinian rallies going on. On the left side of your screen, uh, that is outside Washington, D.C.'s Union Station. On the right side of your screen, uh, that is uh, New York City. A lot of passionate voices going on right now, obviously um, propelled uh, by the Israeli war uh, against Hamas uh, in Gaza, which was prompted, uh, if you... uh, by by the October 7th attacks, Hamas attacks uh, on uh, Israel. Uh, And uh, I believe the uh, IDF attacks uh, on Hamas um, began that day, Saturday, October 7th, which uh, have tragically led to a great deal of loss of uh, innocent Palestinian life. Israel says that that is because Hamas embeds within the civilian population of Gaza uh, which the United States uh, intelligence uh, agrees agrees with, um, and uh, but other organizations have condemned uh, for since the since the war began. Uh, we're going to squeeze in a quick break. We'll be right back. The election music, you know, I love it. 2024 lead. Less than two months until Iowa's first in the nation Republican presidential caucuses. And primaries come after that. Most of the candidates are converging on Iowa. Right now, three of them are participating in a family discussion in Des Moines, part of an evangelical Christian Thanksgiving forum meant for a moderated, friendly, open discussion. Missing from their festive table is former President Donald Trump. Let's bring in our panel. Alyssa Farrah Griffin, let me start with you. You were former White House Communications Director for the Trump administration. Trump keeps snubbing these events with his rivals. He's instead going to hold his own rally in Iowa uh, tomorrow. Is he at all taking Iowa's evangelical voters for granted, or are they just already in his pocket? 
Well, he's certainly not showing up for them, but I think that he's just so confident in his standing that he doesn't think he needs to show up and he doesn't think he needs to give equal billing to people who are polling 20 or so points behind him. Um, I think it's offensive to voters. I think you should show up regardless of where you're polling. But his calculation is, why am I going to put a Nikki Haley or DeSantis on equal footing with me when they're not even in striking distance? Now, where that's different is New Hampshire, an open primary where I think you've seen Nikki Haley climb in the polls. And if independents do come out for her, that could actually become a competitive race. Let's turn to the Democrats because there's new CNN poll out today that shows Democrats in New Hampshire think that Biden is their best shot at winning the White House. 65 percent of likely Democratic primary voters plan to write in his name on the ballot, which is important because uh, he's not participating. Uh, his name on the ballot It's traditionally the first of the nation primary because the DNC moved uh, to South Carolina. They're going to do that one first. Uh, Jamal Simmons, you were former comms director for Vice President Kamala Harris. Are you surprised uh, seeing uh, Dean Phillips polling at 10 percent? And you must feel good about the 65 percent write in. Listen, I think the 65 percent is a good number for the for the president. Dean Phillips is going to get some amount because, right, there's always somebody who's going to say they're not happy. I think right now what we're seeing are people who are looking at a blue sky. They're saying, okay, it's just Democrats on Democrats here. I'll pick the Democrat that I may like. Now, when you get down to uh, Trump versus Biden in a general election, I think that sobers up a lot of people's minds and you'll see that they move. There's uh, New York Times had this poll last week about that had Kamala Harris, the vice president, polling a little bit better with Democrats than President Biden. Well, then yesterday they run a story where they go back and they call some of these Kamala Harris, but not Biden voters. And they ask them questions. And by the end of the interviews, they're like, well, I mean, I'll probably vote for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So this is the amount of Democrats when they actually think about the choice that's on the ballot. I think they move. When likely Democratic primary voters in New Hampshire were asked how they would feel about Biden, only 26 percent are enthusiastic. Forty six percent say they're satisfied with him as the nominee. I mean, that is good enough. Look how it breaks down by age, though. This is interesting. Only 10 percent of likely Democratic primary voters under the age of 50 are enthusiastic, compared with 41 percent for those age 50 and older. So he's got a lot of work to do, Biden, to bring up the enthusiasm gap gap for young people. And that's important in terms of getting them out to actually vote. He's got a lot of work to do. So do all the field operation organizations that are out there who are going to be figuring out how to, you know, turn and drag these voters to the polls. There's an entire infrastructure on the Democratic side that is completely focused on finding these voters, talking to these voters, and then literally driving them to the polls so that they show up. So, Alyssa, we did a we we led the hour with a, a look. Oliver Darcy did a look at at all the prominent uh, right wing media figures, Elon Musk and others, people who are very prominent with Republican office holders and presidential candidates like Elon Musk, Charlie Kirk, who are saying very anti Semitic things. Um, Elon Musk yesterday uh, espousing basically white replacement theory. Um, take a listen uh, to uh, Charlie Kirk. Uh, defending Elon Musk on his program uh, uh, on this white replacement theory nonsense. Now, I don't like generalizations. Not every Jewish person believes that. But it is true the Anti-Defamation League was part and parcel with Black Lives Matter. It is true that some of the largest financiers of left-wing anti-white causes have been Jewish Americans. I mean, I don't know, the anti-white causes, a lot of anti-white causes means like supporting like immigrants. Correct. So listen, I think the last month or so since the war in Israel and Hamas broke out, we've seen that there is a deep seed of of anti-Semitism on the far left and the far right in this country. I actually think that it's much bigger and more widespread uh, than I even imagined that it was. But where does this come from? 
Donald Trump at the top. Just this past week, he came after ABC's John Carl for his new book, where he made it a point to come after Kim Kardashian, but say Kanye West, a noted anti-Semite who had said some of the most deeply offensive things I won't repeat about the Jews and said that, you know, that's a better person than she is. When you have somebody at the top dabbling in that, not even dabbling, embracing it and meeting with people, disgusting human beings like Nick Fuentes, it gives license to these other characters who are all part of this ecosystem of right-wing media where they print money off of it. At the end of the day, um, we've kind of allowed it. There's sort of this permission that's been granted, and I think it's in on elected officials to be responsible about who they communicate with, what platforms they appear on. I'd remind you, the House Judiciary Committee had that Elon Musk, Kanye West tweet up for months, even after Kanye West said he was going to go DEFCON on the Jews. That is so irresponsible at a moment when tensions are so heightened and it needs to be denounced. It's a problem on the left, too, right? Well, the problem on the left is that people on the left aren't being very clear about what they're saying. And maybe some of them don't mean it. I don't want to get into their heads. I was in D.C. yesterday with a bunch of candidates who were running for Congress who were at the DNC when that uh, big protest took place outside and the police and the protesters went back and forth. It's uncomfortable for people. There's something happening inside the Democratic Party, Party that's very real. And I think we're going to have to reckon with the fact that a lot of young people who are who, who don't like seeing images of, of babies who are dying in Gaza. No one they, likes that. No one likes that. But they won't acknowledge the fact that babies also were killed on October 7th. And I think if people could just talk about both of those things at the same time, we could probably have a better conversation. And I think if I could just note that there are statistics that show the younger generation, Gen Z, doesn't even necessarily know about the Holocaust in the way that other generations do. When you're a generation that primarily is getting your news on TikTok in 90 second seconds, that doesn't provide the history and the nuance to understand something as complicated as the crisis in the Middle East. Yeah. All right. Well, you guys should run for president. <laughs> Thanks to both of you. Only with you. Are you coming with us? Yeah. No, but I will vote for both of you. <laughs> the latest on protests in U.S. cities. We're back in a moment. Forgot that. You are looking right now at live pictures at, of a, a D.C. pro-Palestinian rally. It's outside uh, Union Station, I believe, in Washington, D.C. There's another one underway uh, in New York City. Uh, and I think uh, Miguel Marquez is there. Look at that. There he is. Miguel, uh, free, free Palestine. I'm hearing that as a chant. Where are you in New York? Uh, we are in Penn Station. I can show you exactly where we are. 34th Street and 8th Avenue, uh, walking toward 33rd Street. It looks like they are stopping now at Pennsylvania Station. Uh, there are several hundred protesters out who started at New York Public Library over near Bryant Park and then march down Fifth Avenue, shutting down traffic. I mean, you can see in this area the amount of traffic that has been stopped now, even on 8th Avenue. So major disruption if you are trying to get somewhere in New York right now. The main chance we have not heard some of the more anti-virulent or the more virulent anti-Semitic chants that we had heard earlier uh, at, at other protests, uh, but there, the chance of free Palestine. There are some signs. Uh, from the river to the sea. There are some signs uh, claiming that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. People are angry and upset, but also coming out. I mean, there are, it, it grew very, very rapidly. It was a tiny number around when your show started around five o'clock today. And then within, within about a half hour, groups from the city joined them. What do today is shut down different businesses, they say, uh, are complicit or are assisting Israel. So, uh, BNY Bank, uh, uh, BNY Mellon Bank here in New York, the uh, protesters were there today. 
several were were arrested uh, at, at different media outlets they've gone to as well. And it is not clear what is on the agenda tonight. Uh, they had tried to go to the Grand Central Station on previous nights. This is about uh, as big as some of the protests have been. We've, we've seen much larger ones here in New York. There's another one scheduled for tomorrow in Brooklyn as well. So this is going to be, from the people I've talked to tonight, an ongoing protest until they see a ceasefire. Jake? All right, Miguel Marquez uh, outside uh, Penn Station. Uh, and I'm sure we are all hoping for uh, a free democratic uh, Palestine someday, free from Hamas, for sure. An update in the hospital shooting in Concord, New Hampshire. State police say that the suspect is dead and that another person was shot inside the lobby of the building. We do not know the condition of that person, but we do know that the shooting, according to police, was contained to just the lobby area. They also say all patients inside the hospital are thankfully safe and that there is no threat to the public currently. We expect to get more updates from the police soon. Coming up Sunday night at 9 Eastern for the latest episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper, CNN's Nima Albagar has a personal report from her home country of Sudan, where stories of brutal war crimes and other atrocities have remained out of reach from most Western media organizations. We showed you a clip of this earlier in the week, but I really do recommend that you watch the entire piece. Going home, the war in Sudan, watch it. Follow Nima's emotional journey to her family home this Sunday, 9 p.m., only here on CNN. Sunday morning... I'll be on State of the Union, the guest, 2024 Republican presidential candidate, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. That's Sunday morning at 9 Eastern and again at noon here on CNN. I will see you Sunday morning. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He is in the Situation Room. See you Sunday morning. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.